our series at the moment is called Comfort in Hardship. And maybe if you're if you're looking in, maybe you've watched a few of these um, preaching sessions, or you've just observed Christianity, and you're thinking, I don't really see what the comfort is. It's not um, immediately obvious to me what the comfort actually is. Maybe even if you're a, you're a Christian yourself and thinking, we've been going through this series Comfort in Hardship for a bunch of weeks now, and I, I kind of know that I'm comforted, but I don't really know that I know exactly what it is. This is, I want to kind of nail it down a little bit today. Comfort, comfort can be, can't it? Um, it can come in a couple of different ways. It can be really simple and uh, really sort of really tangible it can we can be greatly comforted just by the fact that we know somebody's there that can bring us incredible comfort can't it we can be incredibly comforted and i guess we've seen this um or felt this as we've experienced lockdown we can be incredibly comforted by a hug do you know that just the human touch somebody putting their arm around our shoulders somebody um standing next to us that's an incredibly comforting thing even just somebody making us a brew you know just some in that combo somebody putting their arm around you and making you a cup of tea just that simple tangible thing incredibly comforting and it can it can be simple and tangible but it can also be incredibly deep as well at the same time um comfort can't it one one of my favorite things to do almost an essential thing to do when we go on our holidays um i'm a i'm a I'm a beach person rather than a pool person. Um, I don't mind the pool. I can, I can do all that. But I want to get near the near the sea. And I think one of the reasons why is I, I go and dip my toes in the sea, and I hear the waves uh, coming back and forth, just rolling on and on. And it just brings me the the older I get, incredible comfort. Just to you know, it really puts me in my place. It makes me. It reminds me how. You know, little I am and insignificant I am, and yet the world just rolls on and on and on. And that, the knowledge of that, the knowledge of that cre- in a creational sense just brings me real comfort. And I think we need we need both, don't we? To be truly comforted, if we're honest. It's no good um, deep down inside having comfort if, if nobody likes you. That's not very comforting. You've got nobody around you. And at the same time, if you've got loads of people around you, but inside you're churning over, that's that's no comfort either. In in this passage, um, it's it's an awesome little passage, I think, because it really reminds us in some really easy to observe ways. And Paul, I think Paul kind of sometimes when you read Paul's letters, it's like it, you read it like he's teaching you it, but at the same time, as I read this, it's almost like he's he's realizing it as well. So he's realizing it as he teaches it that that this great comfort for the Christian, tangible and uh, deep, and he describes it. I want us to think of comfort today as like layers of an onion. Stay with me. Layers of an onion. It, it, as you go through the passage, it starts off on the really sort of obvious, tangible stuff. And then it's like it peels it back to reveal uh, the deeper stuff at the end. So roll with me. Check out verse um, 5 and 7. Let's read them through together. This is layer 1. This is the most tangible, um, simple comfort that we get as Christians for when we came yeah when we came verse 5 into Macedonia we had no rest uh, but we were harassed at every turn conflicts on the outside fears within but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus and not 
only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my job, my job, my joy was greater uh, than ever. And Paul, Paul's kind of like this super apostle guy, isn't he? He had this incredible revelation of Jesus. And you look at him and you think, yeah, untouchable, awesome guy. And yet, read any of his letters and he's clearly feeling the pinch of life. Clearly, clearly feeling it. And it looks, every time, you know, read one or two of his chapters over and over, it looks like he's about to break at any point. And if you remember back, and Paul mentioned this a few weeks ago, uh, to chapter two, he goes to a place, I think it's called Troas, and he gets there and there's nobody there for him. And he's expecting to see Titus. Titus doesn't rock up and he just goes, I'm, I can't do it. I'm not, I'm not going. And then in, in this passage, Titus appears and he hears that people are in it with him and he's comforted. Just that, just that simple, yeah, Titus has come. Somebody's standing with me and I've heard that people are with me. This is the first thing I'd like to sort of lay before you get to think about. God knows that we're not just spiritual robots. He knows that we're not, there's a sense in which isn't there that we think of ourselves as Christians, that we are, we're on this journey towards change to becoming some, something holy and there is a spiritualness to us. But God knows you know, he knows, he knows there is a physicality to us as well. He knows that when we get nervous, our hands shake. He knows that when we get really upset, water comes out of our eyes. He, know, he knows this about us. He knows our physicality. And you only really need to open page one of the Bible. Is that um, one of my favorite, and I think it's one of the most comedic, in a sense, um, little passages in the whole of the Bible where God looks in after he's created the human, the man, and he says, um, and I always wonder what the man was doing at this point. He says, it's not good for the man to be alone. He looks, you know, it, and maybe maybe you caught fine as a, as a man on your own. Anytime that Jude and the kids, my wife Jude and the kids go away, I just end up staring at the ceiling and staring at the wall and not really knowing what to do, especially if they've gone for a week. And God looks in at the man he's created. I don't know if he'd got stuck in a hedge or fallen down a hole. as the only human on planet Earth at this point. But God looks and he says, it's not good. He's going to need somebody with him. He's going to need something. Read into the New Testament. Read the way that Paul talks about the church. Anytime he talks about the church, he talks about it as this interconnected building or body. It's like he says, you're going to need, the, just in order to make steps, steps of progress, in order to live, in order to thrive, you're going to need other people around you. It's so true, isn't it? We need... As human beings, we need people to stand with us. We need people to cry with us. We need people to hold our hands. And God knows this and brings this comfort uh, to Paul. But that's that's only really the first tangible layer of this bit of comfort that Paul gets. Layer two, read through verse seven again, because it's not just the fact that people are there. It's that these people are genuinely driven to care by what they've experienced of God. Let me just read verse 7 again. And not only by his coming, the coming of Titus, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. He says to them, 
this is, and I guess this is this is his realization at this point that this is this is real, real love and real care from from these people. Paul had just written, and we'll come back to it in a in a second. Paul had First Corinthians and probably some other letters too. Paul had written a real harsh and firm letter to these people. So this is not this is not just a loving, and Paul. Paul feels the love in this moment. It's like these people aren't just standing with me. I've probably given them cause um, to dislike me. I've said some pretty abrupt stuff. And yet they're here and they are longing for me. They're deep. Their thoughts for me are deep and they're ardent. That's what he's that's that's the sort of reality he's waking up to in this moment. That's that's what we want, isn't it, I think, as Christians. That's what we want as people. We want we don't we don't just want people to be there for us because because we've been nice to them or because we we pay them a bit of attention we want we want the genuine every time i scroll through my social media feeds mostly facebook less so on instagram but mostly facebook there's always a kind of post that says something like i'm not going to chase people anymore you know with that sense that i'm yeah, i'm not i'm not <laughs> Almost that that feeling that they're just exhausted of of having to receive love in need in order to receive love having to be some way or do something and there's this just I mean it's mostly the sensitive souls that post these sort of things on Facebook but just that idea I think that's probably within all of us we probably wouldn't all post it just that idea that we don't want to have to do stuff for people to love us we want people to love us gen you know genuinely just despite who we are. Not because we've done something for them. And Paul's realization at this point, I think, is that this this is what's bearing out in the Christian story. He doesn't know these people super well. He's not you know, he's he's not seen them for a bit. He said some pretty harsh stuff to them. And yet they're standing there with him physically, saying, We'll stand with you. And they're not just you know, they're not just paying him lip service, it's not just it's not just a loving. They're saying yeah, this this is a longing and a real love for you. That's the love that we want, and that's the comfort that Paul recognizes that this thing that Jesus started is doing. But that's just layer two, because you kind of look at that and you go, at least I go when I see that that story unfolding. You go, how do you get to that point? How do you? Because I'm not always there in terms of the unconditional love for everybody or for people that I don't even know. Not always even it seems for those who I live with immediately. And that bears out in the next little section. It's layer three of the onion, verses eight through to 11. So just read these through with me. This is kind of, gives us a bit of a sense of the context um, of the letter. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, um, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became, I'll check this out, you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow, hang on to this verse, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. 
See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. Paul, Paul's written something. So hold your eyes over, particularly verse 8 and 9 at this point. Paul's written something to them that's it's really, really harsh. You can... If you want to see some, you know, some of what he's been writing to him, you can read one Corinthians chapter five. He's he's heard about a sexual indiscretion that's going on. So that's that's what we think. Um, somebody in the church has run off with their mother, their their father's new wife, so to speak, and Paul confronts them about it and writes to them and says, "This is." This is terrible, what you're doing, and in a sense, confronts he confronts what you know he confronts what's going on in that church, but he confronts in a lot of regard in a lot of ways the the culture in Corinth. Corinth, um, for lo- long periods historically, enjoyed um, a real liberty uh, with their sexual behaviour. They enjoyed they enjoyed themselves. You know, we could say that. And he writes to them, and he and he confronts. Uh, that culture, and as he as he and he, he confronts it really bluntly to the church, and he's and he's and he's and he's really fierce with them, and he says this is, if you go, you know go away and read one Corinthians chapter five, he says this is and he's damning on them, he says this is terrible what you're doing, and as he writes it, you can see um, intimated between the lines of the letter, he's worried that what he said, you know this new church that's bursting out of Corinth, and his relationship with them, he's worried that his critique will cause them too much sorrow for the relationship to go on and maybe even for the church to go on and as he as he writes about it he says well this, when when you when you confront somebody like this there's really two possibilities that can come out of this and he, he uses these terms he says worldly sorrow and godly sorrow you can either grieve this um, with a god perspective or you can grieve this without a god perspective and there's like a bit of a working definition of worldly sorrow. He he sort of looks on at these people and he says, it could be the case that I write this to you and you are so upset, but upset for yourselves, and your pride's hurt, and your way of life, the the way of life, you know, your traditions are undermined, and that just hurts you so much um, that we can't go on. That there's there's no way forward. And Paul, Paul's really damning about this idea of of worldly sorrow he says to them this leads you see that in verse, i think it's verse 10 he says to them this leads to death he says he says about about moments like this about about any kind of sorrow i think that enters our lives he said it's possible um, to grieve it in such a way it's possible to be sad in such a way that death comes. It's possible to be sad in such a way that trouble always has the upper hand over you. That's what he says. He said it's it's possible for us as we live our lives that the way we cope with sorrow means that trouble and difficulty always stay before us, always stay on the horizon. And just Maybe you want to dismiss that out of hand for a second when you think about your coping strategies, but just think about for a second some of the ways that 
we cope with sorrow, some of the things that we do, and I've, I've pulled out three, it's not an exhaustive list, and they're all ones that I do. When I get, when I'm hurt by something, you know, either, either when it's like this, when somebody confronts me about something I'm doing, or just when I've experienced something bad, one of the things I do, maybe you do it too, is blame other people. The bad thing happens, the thing that could cause you sorrow happens, and you just end up being angry out at whatever it is, angry at the thing, or angry at the person that's caused you the grief. And that is kind of a bit of an immediate release, a tiny bit of comfort right at the start, but it doesn't last long. And if you're anything like me, what can happen then is you just end up becoming hit-filled. You know, if that's the way you cope anytime grief comes, that it pours out in here, it's not really it's not really living. The other, the other thing that we could do, one of the things that I've done in the past is to sort of embrace the mess to sort of absorb a kind of woe is me mentality. The sorrow comes and I just go, okay, life's rubbish. I'm just going to disappear into whatever rubbish comes my way and throw myself into it. And that doesn't really help at all. The The other way that I've tried, and I think that we try as human beings, is, is distraction. The sorrow comes our way and we just... You know, it's it, we, we're met by something, whatever the sorrow is, somebody confronts us or life's tough or the illness comes or we see the tragedy on the TV, whatever it is. And to, to cope with it, our worldly way of coping with it is just to pick a distraction, just get another miniseries on Netflix or, which is awesome, by the way. But, you know, we just go for distraction after distraction after distraction. And this is, you know, this can kind of help. I go here. I go here definitely. But. You've still got to sleep. You've still got to face whatever the thing is at the end of the day. And all these, I think, worldly ways that we choose to grieve and cope with sorrow, I think, in my experience, and message me if I'm wrong, I think they always leave trouble trouble with the upper hand. They only, they only mean trouble perpetuates or gets worse or just stays in front of us the whole time. That's worldly sorrow. But Paul, Paul's joy... And his comfort at this point comes because that's not what these Corinthians do. He says, you chose godly sorrow. He said, even though I wrote a really harsh letter to you about something that's in your culture, something that you've been really familiar with, you know, that really would really cut to the bone for you. You didn't choose to just view it through your own eyes. The way that you viewed it, the way that you chose to grieve was was more in, in line with what God would want and the way that God would see things. It says in verse 10 that you became sad as God intended. You saw this thing through God's eyes and ached as God would ache or like God would ache. It grieved you. And even though perhaps as you sort of really dig into the passage, you go, well, maybe some of these people didn't do this physical act. Probably they didn't. They, they still grieved. They still turned to repentance. See what it says in the text. They still ended up in this place because they saw it through God's eyes. And they turned and repented. They grieved to the extent that they saw their own part in it. Now, whenever this word repentance comes up, I think particularly if you've if you're not sympathetic towards Christianity, but even if you've been a Christian for a long time, you can have this idea that repentance, you know, you've got this immediate picture of the preacher guy in the suit at the front, banging the lectern, shouting repentance to people. And you can almost have this idea of an angry God who just wants to, you know, put people down and keep them down. 
repent. I want to, you know, I want to show that I'm the person that's in charge and I get to stamp my foot on you. But I think we, I think we, the church has done that. We've done that. But that's not really what repentance is. There is that, there is that cry of, man, you've got to, you've got to think about this. But it's not just to keep people down, which is sometimes what we've done historically as church. It is ultimately so that people turn around. That's what repentance is. It's seeing people going the wrong way and going, man, you're going the wrong way. And it's not hoping that they just stay there and you get the authority. It's it's hoping with all your heart that they turn around. That's what that's what's going on here. I just want you to think about that. If if you're if you've maybe not seen much of church and all you've seen of it is guys at the front shouting at you to repent, or you've read passages in the Bible that look more angry than they really should be or that you're comfortable with, I would just remind you that every word, every word from God, every word in the scripture, and every word that should come out of every minister's mouth, is not in order to beat people down, it's in order to turn you around, so that you thrive. And Paul says, in this passage, particularly in verse 11, he said, this sorrow that came your way, because you viewed it through godly eyes, it didn't cripple you. It didn't press you down. It became the making of you. Read verse 11 with me. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. These these have become... In a situation that could have been incredibly messy, these have become people who, deep at their core, have turned round. Have turned round into more awesome people. This is, this is what Paul's comfort is. This is the Christian comfort. I think this is part of the Christian comfort. It's not for Paul just the tangible. I mean, it is the tangible. It's yes, this Christian thing that's happening has meant that I've got people standing with me. People caring for me but it's also that deep deep in his soul and deep in the souls of others and thus influencing the world you can he can see that god is turning things around for good this comfort is both it's both the simple and the tangible and the deep and the longing that's what paul gets and paul I think as he writes it to teach it to us, but also as he feels it and realises it and is blown away by it, says to Corinth and he says to all of the churches around in his letters and he says to us, and I guess this is his preach, only, only Jesus can bring comfort like this. Only, only the life of Jesus could have possibly sparked off this what's happening to me me in deep turmoil at the end of my tether you know at the end of it all giving up at times only only jesus could bring me comfort here because only jesus stood tangibly with the untouchables only jesus put his arm around them when nobody else would no matter what was going on only gina only jesus dished out generous unconditional love only jesus did that that got deeper 
and deeper, the more strained his life got. Only Jesus, in the deepest depths of his own sorrow, when when he sweat drops of blood because he was so afraid of what was coming, only Jesus could turn around and say, okay, your will be done in this moment, God. Only Jesus could bring that. I wonder where your comfort is today. Sometimes I, I'll i go out for a run and listen to some 90s pop, no, 90s acoustic stuff, and that brings me comfort for a couple of minutes. Sometimes um, I'll watch Grand Designs and I'll daydream about having a house and loads of money sort of the comfort that that brings and that gives me comfort for about five minutes sometimes i daydream that i'm some sort of super cool footballer i still do that i'm 41 and that that brings me the comfort for about five minutes if you're looking for comfort if you've never thought about the religious thing before in your life let me point you to jesus and the comfort that he brings because ultimately that's the kind of comfort that i think you need